This week on InfoSec Inc., U.S. CERT warns users against a newly uncovered malware. Cyber attackers are using hidden tunnels to spy on financial firms. OPM wants to know where the cyber workforce gaps are. And we interview a crypto mining entrepreneur and learn about what it takes to set up a crypto mining data center. All these stories and more are coming up. So get ready to get in sync with InfoSec Inc. Hello, and welcome to the 36th episode of the InfoSec Sync podcast, where we keep you in sync with the ever-changing world of information security. I'm your host, Matt Morris. And I'm your host, Nick Thomas. And give us 60 minutes, and we will keep you on top of the latest security news and help you gain CPEs while tuning in. InfoSec Sync is brought to you by VicTech. At VicTech, they pride themselves on teamwork, customer satisfaction, and providing customers with elite engineering and technology solutions. They aim to become an ever more dominant force in every area, product, or service they represent. Visit them on the web at VicTech.net. That's V-I-K-T-E-C-H dot net. And now, for stories of the week ending June 19th, 2018. Teen, teen, teen. What's what up, up InfoSexy? Info What's going on, guys? Hey, Matt is back. You already know. Matt, where you been? Let, let the people know where you've been. What have you been doing? <sighs> been focusing on this doctorate. It's been, uh, it's been pretty crazy. I'm, I'm going to have uh, to call Matt Dr. Matt in a little bit, guys. Yeah, we got like a year left, so it'll be a lot of fun. But uh, sorry I've been away, but I'm already back in the lab with the... Mad scientist Nick, <laughs> <laughs> we're making it happen. We got to get Vic back on the show. It's been a minute. Yeah, it's been it's been a minute. Um, you missed the uh, cyber summit. Yeah, I know you had stuff going on, so uh, mm-hmm. had to take Sold that my over house. for you. Now I'm in D. Now I'm in uh, Rockville, DC area. So you already know what it is. Yeah, man, you're living the life. Living the life. Trying to DC Metro. <laughs> <laughs> um. So what do we got going on this week as far as news, Nick? All right, so first story, the U.S. Computer Emergency Readiness Team, also known as the U.S. CERT, is warning users and admins about newly uncovered malware developed by North Korean hacking group Hidden Cobra. They're also known as the Lazarus Group. So their report on TypeFrame identifies 11 pieces of malware, which consist of Windows executable files and a Word document with malicious Visual Basic macros. The files have the capability to download and install malware, install proxy and remote access trojans, connect to command and control servers to receive additional instructions, and modify the victim's firewall to allow incoming connections. Uh, U.S. CERT is noting this in their latest malware report on the uh, uh, North Korean government's Hidden Cobra campaign. In the May U.S. CERT, um, in May U.S. CERT issued an alert about Hidden Cobra's Jonap and Bramble malware, which have been used since 2009 to collect information from companies in the media, aerospace, financial, and critical infrastructure sectors. Hidden Cobra is also known as the hacking group Lazarus, which researchers believe was responsible for, you know, the WannaCry ransomware outbreak that uh, yeah. we all know about. Um, yep. There was an 80 million Bangladesh cyber bank heist through SWIFT that we talked about last week. And, of course, the infamous 2014 Sony Pictures hack. Um, researchers at McAfee earlier this year spotted a malicious Word document used in a phishing campaign aimed at financial sector organizations in Asia. As with the TypeFrame Word document, it encouraged users to enable content to run a malicious Visual Basic macro. 
The type frame report is the 12th malware family U.S. CERT has attributed to the Hidden Cobra group, including destructive malware and tools for carrying out distributed denial-of-service attacks. It also includes the malware implant Bankshot Rat, which was identified by U.S. CERT last December, and resurfaced in March in a targeted phishing attack on Turkey's financial sector via a malicious Word document with an embedded Adobe Flash Player exploit. That exploit, though, to have been developed by North Korean hackers was previously used in a zero-day flash attack on South Korean targets. U.S. CERT urged admins and users to give any activity related to this type frame the highest priority for enhanced mitigations. It also urged users to report any detections to DHS, National Cybersecurity, and Communications Integration Center, also known as what people call the NKIC, or contact the FBI CyberWatch, SciWatch. So again, with these uh, malicious Word documents, it takes a user to click or enable enable the macros. So people be on the on the lookout for that. Make sure your users aren't doing that. Make sure when you're doing your um, uh, cyber awareness campaigns that you're allowing your users to know this information and showing them what could happen if that's possibly um, clicked on. Exactly. I mean, it's one of those things where the user has to, you know, perform that action when it comes through. They have to go in and they have to enable those macros. But the attackers are getting much more savvy, right? The user doesn't need administrative privilege. They just need to enable the macros in most cases. And then it's off to the races from an attacking standpoint. Yeah, absolutely. So um, they need, uh, what is it, uh, text and pictures in the uh, <laughs> awareness training, right? Do not do this. Maybe even some um, some some labs and stuff like that where it's like, which one of these documents would you open and what would you do when you open them, right? So That's a good way to do it. Yeah, pretty cool. So into our next story, uh, sophisticated cyber attackers are using hidden tunnels to spy on financial firms and pilfer sensitive data and personally identifiable information, or PII, and they're doing it at a higher rate than in other industries. So researchers at Vectra discovered 23 hidden exfiltration tunnels disguised as encrypted web traffic for every 10,000 devices in the financial sector, compared to 11 tunnels per 10,000 and other industries overall, according to the company's 2018 Spotlight Report on Financial Services, which is based on analysis and nominized metadata from Vectra customers who agreed to share the detection metrics. So between August 2017 and January 2018, Vectra detected an uptick in the number of hidden exfiltration tunnels posing as unencrypted web traffic in financial services from 7 per 10,000 devices to 16. So attackers mimic and blend in with behaviors related to users, applications, business models, identified and profiled by different industries, said Chris Morales, who's Vectra's head of security analytics. So it's not the behavior that surprises me, which is what he said. Since financial services will always be a high-value target to attackers, it's the frequency of that behavior, said Morales. Even heavy investments in security and quote-unquote really restricted networks don't make the financial industry immune to hidden tunnel attacks that they simply may not be aware of. So, and I quote, they have a hard time answering if they even if the know if they even know if the tunnels exist said Morales, 
who commended financial companies for the work they've done so far and suggested that they take a life cycle approach to tracking behavior and attacks. So it's one of those things where um, normal operations of a system, right? And that's kind of what we've been trained as computer network defenders to look at, right? What When I'm looking at my network, the you know inbound and outbound traffic, what is quote unquote normal? Um, we don't want static signatures, right? Although it's a layered defense model, the static signatures will only tell you so much. You have to know how a car normally acts to develop a check engine light. Same thing with a network. You have to know how a network regularly operates in order to uh, quote unquote create that check engine light or create some indicator that something's going on that requires further triage. Um, otherwise, you just waste the computer network defender's time, and it's expensive time. And most, and most, you know, uh, corporations and organizations, it's a very limited time as well because we're putting out fires, right? Mm-hmm. There's not a lot of us to go around and look at this stuff. No, it's, and speaking of not a lot of us to go around, that brings us to our next story. Um, we've we've heard in the news and even in our own industry that there's not a lot of um, cybersecurity people. And this one is the um, Office of Personnel Management. They're pushing agencies to report cyber workforce gaps. So they want to know exactly what cybersecurity positions agencies need to fill to protect themselves and carry out their missions. In accordance with the 2015 Federal Cybersecurity Workforce Act, OPM is requiring chief human capital officers act agencies to submit a preliminary report by the 31st of August, outlining the cybersecurity roles in need and the root causes of the skills shortages. Strengthening our cybersecurity workforce remains critical for securing our nation's financial systems, energy grids, intelligence, and defense systems, and safeguarding the personally identifiable information of hundreds of millions of Americans. OPM's Associate Director of Employee Services, Mark Reinhold, was quoted. The shortage of cybersecurity workers isn't confined to government. A May 2017 report from the Center for Cyber Safety and Education predicted a global shortage of 1.8 million cybersecurity personnel by 2021. Government agencies are considering fast hire authority, specialty pay, and flexibility to move from public to private sector to get the federal cybersecurity workforce up to speed. In the memo, which follows the April 2nd OPM guidance for coding and classifying jobs with IT and cyber functions to help agencies uh, address workforce shortages, the template directs agencies to mark positions of need, ranging from software, developer, and security architect, to data analyst and system administrator, to legal advisors, defense analysts, data collectors, and cyber investigators. It also asks agencies to mark whether the skill shortage is due to staffing or proficiency levels, determine whether whether the shortage is current or emerging, and identify possible root causes of the shortage. This information is critical as it provides the administration with cybersecurity needs from a government-wide perspective and may enable future resources to be dedicated accordingly. Following the preliminary report, a comprehensive agency report is due April 30th of 2019. Uh, The full report must include the completion of action plans with metrics and targets to address and mitigate root causes identified 
for the cybersecurity work roles of critical need. So Matt, this is good stuff. And of course, just like the government, it's very late. <laughs> yeah, so one of those things is the DOD 8570 um, requirement has been around for a while, right? And then they pushed that into DFARS compliance to basically say, in your contracts as a service provider to the government, you must identify mm-hmm. yep. the, um, you know, the SMEs and and who's doing SMEs. what. And I think there's a new version out actually from the, from the old from the previous one. But anyway, it's the right. Same, it's like one seventy one or whatever the DFARS is. But the thing is, the government knows how to do it and put limits on the service provider. But the problem is they can't apply that same methodology in their own house, right? So they're very good at looking like a, at a proposal when they put an RFP out and looking at the bids and saying, okay, we want to, you know, execute on this work and have this person do, you know, this contractor perform this work from us, for us. But it's applying that same mentality to your own shop, mm-hmm. right? Saying, okay, we have on-premise network defenders because they have a vested interest in protecting the network right and their government employees how come they don't leverage that same requirement it can't be because of the skill shortage no. i mean we've seen the trend of um the the skill gap is is being closed there's plenty of uh network defenders out there there's plenty of people that could to could fill these roles and there's plenty of certification bodies out there right now that can provide some level of verification and validation for those candidates that they can perform that job. Right. So I don't know. There's some, there's some level of reform that needs to happen on the government side. And with that, we'll take our first break. VicTech provides information assurance solutions that result in higher efficiency and protection in defense of their clientele. Their expertise in information security controls and the CNA processes, such as the Risk Management Framework, NIST 837, and supporting lifecycle processes, is why commercial and government entities trust and rely on their solutions. VicTech combines innovative business practices and strategies with their technical expertise and base their own success on customers achieving their goals. Visit them on the web today at VicTech.net. That's V-I-K-T-E-C-H dot net. All right, and we'll back from that break. All right, guys. So uh, on to our next story. A bug in macOS can expose the contents of a user's file, including document text and photo thumbnails, even if the drive is encrypted. So security researcher um, Wajik Regula found that the quick look feature in macOS, which takes a snapshot of a file's contents in the full file path without the user having to open each file, stores that snapshot data in an unprotected location on the computer's hard drive. Regula, a security specialist, wrote up details about the macOS data leak issue earlier this month. And I quote, it means that all the photos you've previewed are stored in that directory as a miniature and its path, Regula work, uh, wrote. They stay there even if you delete the files, he said. Patrick Wardle, the chief research officer at Digital Security, built on Regula's work in his own blog post, published Monday, noting that the bug is triggered every time a user opens a folder. So the bug exposes even encrypted volumes to potential snooping. So if you unmount the encrypted volume, 
The thumbnails of the file are still stored in the user's temp directory and thus can be extracted, said Wardle. He explained that the bug is an issue for anyone using encrypted volumes. If a laptop is stolen or seized by law enforcement, but unmounted and, and considered safe, the quick look cache can still reveal the contents of the files if the thumbnail is large enough. So, and I quote, basically this makes using encrypted containers pointless, end quote. During a conversation on Sunday, Wordle also found that the quick look bug also affected USB drives that had once been plugged into a user's Mac. Basically, you have a forensic trail of what was on the removable drive, he said. If a person plugged in a USB drive and read instructions from Russia, the fact would be stored on the computer. So there are some caveats, Wardle said. If the main hard drive is encrypted, then the quick look cache, along with everything else on the drive, is also encrypted, meaning that any such data, quote-unquote, may be safe on a powered-off system. But if someone has access to the running system, this cache feature can reveal the contents, even if the password encrypted containers are mounted and considered safe. So the issue is known to forensic experts, said Regula, and was written back in 2010. But Apple has not fixed the apparent data leak issue, even in the most recent version of macOS. Offering a solution on his blog, Wardle explained how to purge the Quick Look cache from the computer. I think it would be pretty easy for Apple to either not generate a preview if the file is within an encrypted container, or better yet, when a volume is unmounted. Delete the cache, said Wardle. Yeah, I think that's the best way in... I think we're going to, um, in the show notes, we're going to show you how to purge the quick look cache from the computer. Right. It's one of those things where I think the best, so here's, it's a double-edged sword, right? The best solution in this case is to power off the box when you're not using it, right? But if the box is powered off, it's not receiving updates on the network. True. So that's not really uh, a solution. Well, it depends I on guess, if you're uh, in an enterprise environment or not, right? Yeah, if you're in an enterprise environment, the best thing for you to do is virtualize and have thin clients out at everybody's desk, right? And if they have to use some type of MacBook or laptop, right, you have the full disk encryption, but at the same time, you limit through policy, you know, what features can be on the operating system itself. Right. Because this isn't something that needs to be there. I mean, you can open Finder. You don't have to use Quick Look and all this stuff. You can use Finder, and there's, a, I believe, a database that's generated on the back end. It's like a, in a Linux file system, you have Locate, where you can type in Locate and locate um, particular things on the system, like if you're looking for a file name or something like that. Um, I believe that Finder works in the same fashion. Uh, however, the database is like updated um, in some frequency, right? It's run like, you know, every hour to update this, um, uh, the equivalent of like an inode table or something like that, where it says this is what's on the file system, but quick look looks like a separate, um, type of like, uh, quick, you know, being able to recall what you have recently looked at. So it doesn't seem like it's something that's too terribly, um, important from a not from a enterprise standpoint to have from a non-enterprise standpoint it sounds like it's more of a convenience factor and it goes back to that dichotomy of security versus convenience so yeah like you said i turn my systems off at home when i'm not using them so <laughs> yeah i mean that's the best way to do it but then it begs the question of you know 
This is when somebody is on the network, they get onto a system and they're able to pull data off of your system, right? Uh, even if you've encrypted your drive, they're able to use this, um, this particular avenue of attack to pull data and exfiltrate data or, you know, uh, C data of which you would probably not want to keep private. Right. right? But, um, then you have the layered defense model of how did they actually get on your network? Then you have all the IOT devices that are out there that could be unpatched. Um, so like, even though turning this off, maybe the uh, answer, it's still layered defense at home because you have typically IOT devices that are there as well. Right. And hopefully, you to... hopefully you have those segmented off. <laughs> exactly. That's actually the best way to do it. Have multiple VLANs, right? You have, uh, either two separate networks um, or you have a VLAN where you have one portion of the VLAN that's like IoT, IoT devices only. only. Yeah. yeah. Then you have like your personal devices on another one. Then you can change the inherent policies because I know and I, from an IoT device standpoint, it's only typically going to be operating over HTTPS and then maybe some other protocol to get updates, right? And I can limit traffic on that VLAN to only things that are pertinent to those IOT devices. Whereas the personal devices, you may have HTTP, HTTPS, you know, um, other protocols from a, uh, surfing application, you know, if you have an iPad or iPhone or Android device, right. Being able to do that stuff. So to limit the amount of damage, I think that's what it boils down to limiting the amount of damage that an attacker can do on your network if they do get on the network. Yeah, that's true because you're going to get hit at some point. <laughs> Someone's yeah, it's always going to get of hit. If, it's when, right? It's when so, and, and what you have in place. Right. But it's, it's things that people don't talk about. It's kind of like, you remember the, uh, what was the name of the thing we came up, the consumer, <laughs> it was the assertion? Yeah. I forget Remember what we called that, yeah. CAS, it was like Consumer Assertion Scoring System. Security Score. No, secure. it was like the label that would get put on a consumer device to show um, if, you know, that particular vendor had a breach in the past, you know, what, um, how, like, how frequent they are with updates. Matt, don't so give whereas, away our stuff, man. Come on. No, man, I know. It's a little <laughs> bit of the secret sauce, but... Um, that would definitely be something that I think would Patent come pending. into play here. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. If you're listening to this right here, um, you guys could, could move on that. So just, just be sure to write us in the, uh, acknowledgements there, you know, that you got to hear first. We got a little so, bit of IOT in this next story here. Yeah. So, uh, what's it all about? So, um, Google's in the news again, and in the coming weeks, they're expecting to fix a location privacy leak in two of its most popular consumer products. New research shows that websites can run a simple script in the background that collects precise location data on people who have a Google Home or Chromecast device installed anywhere on their local network. Uh, Craig Young, who's a researcher uh, with security firm Tripwire, said he discovered this authentication weakness that leaks incredibly, incredibly accurate information about users of both the smart speaker and home assistant google home and chromecast uh and of course we will know chromecast it's a small electronic device that makes it simple to stream tv shows movies and games to uh digital television or monitor that you know for the folks that don't want cable 
Right. He said that the attack uh, works by asking the Google device for a list of nearby wireless networks and then sending that list to Google's geolocation lookup services. An attacker can be completely remote as long as they can get the victim to open a link while connected to the same Wi-Fi or wired network as a Google Chromecast or home device. The only real limitation is that the link needs to remain open for about a minute before the attacker has a location. The attack content could be contained within malicious advertisements or even a tweet. It's common for websites to keep a record of the numeric um, IP address of all visitors, and those addresses can be used in combination with online geolocation tools to glean information about each visitor's hometown or region. But this type of location information is often is often quite imprecise. In many cases, IP geolocation offers only a general idea of where the IP address may be based geographically. And you've probably seen this when you're doing find friends on your Apple phone. It's showing sort of around where they are. And you know they're in one spot, but it's showing them like across the street or down the street a little bit. So this is typically not the case with Google's geolocation data, which includes comprehensive maps of wireless network names around the world, linking each individual Wi-Fi network to a corresponding physical location. Armed with this data, Google can very often determine a user's location to within a few feet, particularly dense populated areas, by triangulating the user between several nearby mapped Wi-Fi access points. Um, Here's a side note. Anyone who'd like to see this uh, in action need only to turn off location data and remove the SIM card from a smartphone and see how well navigation apps like Google's Waze can still figure out where you are. The difference between this and a basic IP geolocation is the level of precision. For example, if you geolocate my IP address right now, I get a location that is roughly two miles from my current location at work. For my home internet connection, the the IP geolocation is only accurate to about three miles. With um, Young's attack demo, however, he's constantly been uh, getting locations within about 10 meters of the device. He said a demo he created is accurate enough that he can tell roughly how far apart his device in the kitchen is from another device in the basement. And you'll see this in the show notes, and um, this is actually from Krebs. So um, this is Brian Krebs interviewing him on this. Uh, He said, I've only tested this in three environments so far, but in each case, the location corresponds to the right street address. The Wi-Fi-based geolocation works by triangulating a position based on signal strengths to Wi-Fi access points with known locations based on reporting from people's phones. Beyond leaking a Chromecast or Google Home uh, users' precise geographic location, this bug could help scammers make phishing and extortion attacks appear more realistic. Common scams like fake FBI or IRS warnings or threats to release compromising photos or expose some secret to friends and family could abuse uh, Google's location data to lend credibility to the fake warnings. The implications of this are quite broad, including the possibility for more effective blackmail or extortion campaigns. Threats to release compromising photos or expose some secret to friends and family could use this to lend credibility to the warnings and increase their odds of success. When Young first reached out to Google in May about his findings, the company replied by closing his bug report with a status, uh, quote, won't fix message. But after being contacted by Krebs, 
Google changed its tune, saying it planned to ship an update to address the privacy leak in both devices. Currently, that update is slated to be released in mid-July uh, 2018. According to Tripwire, the location data leak stems from four authentication by Google Home and Chromecast devices, which rarely require authentication for connections received on a local network. We must assume that any data accessible on the local network without credentials is also accessible to hostile adversaries. This means that all requests must be authenticated and all, unauthentic all unauthenticated responses should be as generic as possible. Until we reach that point, consumers should separate their devices as best as is possible and be mindful of what websites or apps are loaded while on the same network as their connected gadgets. Um, earlier this year, Krebs posted some basic rules for securing your various IoT devices. That primer lacked one piece of advice that is a bit more technical, but which uh, can help mitigate security or privacy issues that come with using IoT systems. Creating your own Internet of Things by segregating IoT devices from the rest of your local network so that they reside on a completely different network from the devices you use to browse the Internet and store files. A much easier solution is to add another router on the network specifically for connected devices. By connecting the WAN port of the new router to an open LAN port on the existing router, attacker code running on the main network will not have a path to abuse those connected devices. Although this does uh, not by default prevent attacks from IoT devices to the main network, it is likely that most naive attacks uh, would fail to even recognize that there is another network to attack. So even right here, they're telling you to either segment it or use another router and connect it to your router just to make your IoT gadgets separated. So essentially to like create another local area network, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. But most consumer devices won't let you go in there and, and configure a LAN. Um, I know, uh, have you ever messed with Tomato? No. For mm -hmm. Linksys devices? It's like a new uh, DDWRT, have you ever heard of that? Where you can um, put different firmware on those devices. And when you put the different firmware on that device, it allows you to um, create like VLANs and things, things of that nature. But what it sounds like here is you buy like a Asus router, Netgear router, whatever, TrendNet router, and you connect the WAN port of that device to the LAN port of your existing router. And then your existing router is the one that's facing the internet and that one you put all your like iPhone, iPad, Android devices, iOS devices, laptops connect to that main one. And then your IOT devices connect to that second one. So it's layered defense. You know, for the, uh, the normal consumer, this is getting very complicated for them. <laughs> it is. There needs to be some consumer security assertion rating. That's, Caesar, that, Caesar that's was what it, what it was. was. Caesar, yes. Caesar, baby. Um, yeah, that, that was great. Uh, consumer electronic security asser assertion rating. Caesar, <laughs> you heard it here first. Caesar, All right, actually, the second time, right? The second time, you got to go back like a year ago. <laughs> I think maybe even longer than that. I've been thinking about that for a while. 
If only we didn't have work and we weren't busy, Nick, we could come up with some cool stuff all the time, huh? <laughs> VicTech is a leader in developing security test plans and procedures and identifying the appropriate tools to support a certification test and evaluation effort. They work with software developers to ensure security software development practices are implemented. VicTech translates security policy and requirements into an IA configuration implementation that considers your operational environment. By implementing world-class cybersecurity solutions and working together as a partner, VicTech helps their clients meet and exceed their objectives. Matt, do you remember last year we interviewed Seth Wall at the National Cyber Summit? He was helping um, NASA with CDM and IT security work. Yeah, I remember Seth. So what's going on? Well, I recently got to sit down with him and visited him at uh, one of his data centers for crypto mining and talked with him about the business and what's involved. Okay, cool. Crypto mining. Definitely uh, definitely cool in the industry. A lot going on there. And here's that interview. So Mr. Seth Wall has been featured in Forbes and the BBC for exploiting Android phones using an implanted NFC chip in 2015. He's also developed hardware that allows for 4K streaming video, produced a device that detects and eliminates enemy IEDs, and developed the radio communications equipment for next generation of fighter jets. He's a Navy veteran, and after recently selling his cybersecurity company to McAfee Global Technologies, he's recently founded a cryptocurrency services startup here in Huntsville, Alabama. It's called Gira Mining, and here's Mr. Seth Wall to tell us a little bit more about it. Welcome to the show, Seth. Hey guys, thanks for having me. No worries. So, people want to know, how did you get interested in starting, uh, started in the crypto mining currency business? Uh, so, I've been in, in cybersecurity, so I already kind of had um, a pretty strong foundation in all the fundamentals, and I've been doing engineering for years, so it, it just kind of... Is it just a natural progression of things for the mm -hmm. most part? That hobby turned into profession. Okay. So um, we all know about Bitcoin and its you know rise, and we see the extraordinary amount of money that it's worth. What's actually invo involved in mining a Bitcoin? Well, there's a there's a couple ways. There's the basic two the two basic tracks to it is there's there's ASIC machines and then there's GPU machines. Mm -hmm. um, What's an ASIC machine? An ASIC is a it is application specific integrated circuit. It means that the the hardware is built for one specific task and it can do only that task really well, but nothing else. So it's not like an Intel board where it does multiple things. It's built specifically for that one thing. Yeah. So if it's a if it's a Bitcoin ASIC, it can only mine Bitcoin, and. And to bind Bitcoin it directly, mm -hmm. you have to have ASICs. There's so that makes it faster, then, right? Uh, it, well, it's faster and it's um, lower heat and lower electricity. Okay. Um, and generally, the density comes down too. So, like, instead of having a huge machine, the machine's generally much smaller. Um, but if you want to mine Bitcoin, you have to have, for the most part, m multiple of these ASIC machines at this point because the difficulty in Bitcoin mining is so high. Um, what most people are doing now is instead of mining Bitcoin directly, you mine altcoins or any of the other coins um, on GPUs because it the the GPU hardware is much more flexible and it can it's still very fast but it can mine multiple coins. 
or and it can process any type of other data as well. Anything that is um, any type of data that's highly recursive, where you're trying to get a, a similar pattern of data go. So for these ASICs uh, or AS I'm thinking of the shoes now, right? For these ASIC yeah, yeah. boxes, um, tell us the components of the ASIC box that you would build or that you have. I don't personally deal with any ASICs in my mining facilities at all. Uh -huh. um, I have, like, I guess you'd call it like political or ideological reasons why I'm not a big fan of ASICs. Um, from a profitability standpoint alone, it's it's hit or miss. Some people love them, some people hate them. Um, I just I find them unmanageable from a heat and power perspective for my for the setups that I run. Because they um, run really hot. They run with really what hot. What you're doing? Yeah, they're really hot. They're really they 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 take a lot of power, and they're really noisy. Um, they're just one of the jokes I say is that the wife approval factor is very low. <laughs> <laughs> um, GPUs, in my opinion, are, are just a, a all-around better purchase of hardware. Okay, so um, run our listeners through what your one typical setup is, just for one machine. Um, so there's a couple of different ways we do it, but um, the the preferred way is it it's one motherboard with uh, 13 1080 Ti NVIDIA GTX 1080 Ti graphics cards. So hold, wait, wait, wait. 10 graphics cards? 13. On one mother, 13 on one motherboard? Yeah. So that's an awesome game of uh, Halo right there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you could really do some, some serious processing on there. Or I guess you could, you could run, I bet you could run Halo pretty well. <laughs> so 13 uh, graphics cards. So each one of those graphics cards, what's in the graphics card? Uh, the graphics card is just a standard off-the-shelf um, high-end gaming component okay so like if you went down to the best buy and you were trying to build the uh, i buy power or uh -huh. you know the best computer you could you'd be buying this graphics card okay so do you typically mine only bitcoin uh I, we actually are not mining any bitcoin at all right now uh instead what way, the way we do it is we mine altcoins and mm -hmm. then convert it to bitcoin um and um my business is actually a it's a managed co-location service so my customers they they give me however much money they want to buy worth of mining rigs i go out and i source the parts with through my distributors where i get lower prices than they could normally get i build the machine for them and i i put it in my data centers and i do everything so i figure out what the most profitable coin is i swap swap to other to more profitable coins if if the market changes i i make sure the machines are running you know as much as possible because the machines can they can be a little bit difficult to to they can be burdensome to, to maintain so if i want to be a customer i'm buying i'm buying the equipment which is the motherboard the graphics cards and you're supplying me with the infrastructure as a service so you're putting it in your racks yep um you're giving me the power uh space cooling and not only that, you're you're keeping track of what coins are more profitable, and you're just switching to those. Yeah. Because yeah. all I care about is how much money I'm going to get at the end of the right. day. Right. All my customers are just worried about how much money they get back. Right. It's it's a return on investment calculation. They they want to they want to put money into something and get a return. 
So uh, the way that I've, I've set my business up is to where um, I do all the management of this. And by, by, by combining the forces of all these small, smaller chunks of computing power, we've essentially built a, a massive GPU supercomputer that can, it can honestly be, be applied for more than just cryptocurrency. Wow. We're actually working on um, securing some uh, large-scale supercomputing contracts with a couple of companies. Um, one of them is for uh, genomic sequencing. Another one is for um, cracking password hashes. Um, and we're looking at another one for doing uh, artificial intelligence machine learning training. So that's very interesting. So not only can you mine crypto... Uh, because you're computing a lot of numbers, you basically have a supercomputer. And the facility we're at here in downtown Huntsville is just one. Tell us about, tell our listeners about uh, where we're at here and your other uh, data centers. So we have the, the, the downtown Huntsville one here is, is a block away from the Campus 805 on, on Governors. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're, we're strategically located here because it's a, kind of a, high traffic area we're also very close to uh cable cable provider so that we have extremely low downtime Mm -hmm. and we're right in the center of we're actually right where three different parts of the power grid cross so we have very low downtime in 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 power which is important because with this type of data center we actually can't um we can't run uh, battery backups because battery backups are immediately destroyed by the amount of current that runs through. Yeah, it's a lot of power going through here. Yeah, if you tried to put a battery backup on something like this, A, you'd have to have a, a, a monstrous battery backup, but you, the cycles that you would hit against that battery would destroy it within like the first year. Um, our other two locations are, are both in the area. We keep them undisclosed for security reasons, and we, we just, um, we, we tend not to make large data centers. Mm-hmm. We try to make small, distributed data centers, and rely on our good software to, to manage the control. So if so, when you get one of these contracts that comes through, can you actually put all your data centers together to work one contract or to work one problem? Yeah, we, that's, that's, so it, it takes a little bit of finesse right now uh, because we haven't gotten it fully set up. Or we're still we're re- rewriting our command and control center right now uh, to ease that process. But what we do now is... Um, we actually have different hard drives that uh, will connect it to a separate command and control center. So we have we have one command and control center for crypto mining, and another for large scale data processing. Uh, and me and my employees, we just we all go out to one data center, and we swap all of the hard drives and all the machines. We have about 20, 30 minute downtime for the whole farm. We come back up, and they all check in to the to the processing side and. We're off to the races. Okay. I know you, um, we recently had uh, the National uh, Cyber Summit here in Huntsville, and we wanted to get you in there, but you were uh, too busy doing some other uh, classes, um, and actually you did one in Hack Miami. Where do you usually conduct your classes and your certifications? So right now we're partnering with uh, different conferences um, as, as, you know, as the conference cycle of the year goes on. We just try to get in with them and... Uh, and, and teach the class and basically the way we work is is they put together the audience mm-hmm. I come in and provide the content so what are you uh, teaching in the class and what does the certification get somebody so right now um, 
we're expanding our stuff out to, to have two different certification classes. Right now, we, we finished uh, building the certified uh, cryptocurrency mining technician class, CCMT. Okay. Um, and that, that teaches somebody everything they would need to, to run a, like a single, fairly small cryptocurrency mining data center like the one we're in right now. Okay. Um, so it, you can come in with no knowledge, leave able to start, basically able to start a competitor to me. <laughs> right, okay. Um, the CCME class, we're still polishing it up and getting it ready to, to, to go live. Um, but that is, that is taking it from, yeah, I could, I could start my own company. I'm very proficient. But now we're going deep. We're going super deep dive, like um, talking how, how to, you know, basically how to build your own cryptocurrency, how to um, do low-level firmware on cards and and changing bios, like swapping out the bios on motherboards, and um, it, it's it's no longer a walk in the park, and now it's you have to be technical. And that's the ME. That's the CCME. Yeah, cryptocurrency mining expert. Oh wow! Okay. So where can they, uh, where can the listeners go to learn more about that information? Uh, they can contact us via our website, garamining.com. And how do you spell that? G-U-E-R-R-A-M-I-N-I-N-G.com. And also you mentioned there's a lot of other cryptocurrency out there. Do you know approximately how many more coins there are? I mean, there are probably tens to hundreds of thousands of coins that have ever been started mm-hmm. um, right now coinmarketcap.com lists like 1600 that are that are actively tracked and just like the Nasdaq it shows you in real time what it's worth yeah at, it's at basically that time. a stock ticker yeah I mean I've, I've created a currency that most people would consider just to be a dead currency at this point called uh, demon coin that was um, it was a way to track or to Verify two anonymous parties on a piece of software called Demonsaw. Mm-hmm. It was a file sharing and chat application that a friend of mine made. Okay. Um, and the problem was that um, you would log in and anybody could change their name that they would talk to you in at any given time. So if you had a conversation with somebody that you wanted to have a conversation with again tomorrow and they change their name every day, how do you verify you don't. who those people are when right. you're both anonymous? And the, the, the solution was to create a cryptocurrency that had no value, and then you both exchange your cryptographic wallet addresses, so you have a public-private key, and then, when, and then you could, when you talk to each other again, you can just exchange some coins, and if it works, then you know that that's the right person. Awesome. That's some, that's some cool stuff from uh, Mr. Seth Wall with Gira Mining. That's www.guerramining.com. So if you're interested and want to get a hold of them, just... Go to the website and uh, send them an email. Seth, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. And thanks for staying in sync with InfoSec Sync. That was great. Glad uh, Seth was able to enlighten us about the different uh, crypto mining pieces. And uh, yeah, let's get into the stories. Um, Security researchers have been warning of a new trick that cyber criminals are leveraging to hide their malicious code designed to reintroduce the infection to steal confidential information from Magneto uh, or Magento, excuse me, based online e-commerce websites. So if you've already cleaned up your hacked 
Magento website, there are chances your website is still leaking login creds and credit card details of your consumers to hackers. More than 250,000 online stores use open source Magento e-commerce platform, which makes them an enticing target for hackers and therefore the security of both your data and your customer data is of the utmost importance. So according to the researchers at Securi, who have previously spotted several Magento malware campaigns in the wild, cybercriminals are using a simple yet effective method to ensure that their malicious code is added back to a hacked website after it has been removed. So to achieve this, criminals are hiding their credit card stealer reinfector code inside the default configuration file, the config.php, of Magento websites, which gets included on the main index.php and loads with every page view, eventually reinfecting the stealer code into multiple files of the website. So since config.php gets automatically configured while installing the Magento content management system, Usually it's not recommended for administrators or website owners to change the contents of this file directly. So the reinfector code spotted by researchers is quite interesting, and it has been written in a way that no security scanner can easily identify and detect it, as well as it hardly looks malicious for, from an untrained eye. So hackers have added 54 extra lines of code in the default configuration file. And as a rule of thumb, on every Magento installation where a compromise is suspected to have taken place, the slash include slash config.php should be verified quickly, researchers advise. It should be noted that similar techniques can also be used against websites based on other content management system platforms, such as Joomla and WordPress, to hide malicious code. Since attackers mostly exploit known vulnerabilities to compromise websites at the very first place, Users are always recommended to keep their website software and servers updated with the latest security patches. So here's another, you know, why can't you MD5 hash that index or config.php config. file? Uh, I mean, is it, it's, so is it a static file? It should be a static file. Does it change? So the default configuration files config.php so at some point when you create this um website right and use the magento software to do it the config.php file is at a known state right it, whether it's you change the colors of the website and it changes the color values inside the config file whatever right there's some point at which this file is known good and when you set it and forget it, because let's face it, if you're a store owner, you probably should not be creating your own website, right? If you're a store owner and you're running the operations of a business, you don't have time to worry about keeping a website up to date. No, you're about right? operations and selling. Exactly. So what it sounds like here, the recipe for disaster was people with low cost, because this was free and open source software, installed it and set it and forget it, right? They did not go back and either check these files or um, upgrade the software, you know, uh, if any updates come down, they, you know, because that means downtime. Yeah, probably Whenever. straight out the box is what they did. Yeah, pretty much. So that's a problem, 100%. Not good. So I guess lesson learned here is, have a service level agreement 
with like another company that's going to create your website, going to maintain the website, going to maintain um, the registrar, right? Um, they're going to maintain their certificates because if they're having a problem with the software that's used on the web server itself, just think about, are, do you think they're using TLS or SSL? Probably, Probably not. not. Yeah, so... It's a recipe for disaster either way. It's probably straight out the box and just turning it on. Hey, so last week we uh, we talked about a whole bunch of Cisco patches. Well, this past Wednesday, they released more, um, including critical flaws impacting NXOS software. So a total of five critical arbitrary code execution vulnerabilities were addressed with this set of security patches, impacting the NX API feature of NSOS. NXOS software and the fabric services component of FXOS software and NXOS software. The bugs can be exploited by unauthenticated remote attackers to cause a buffer overflow, execute arbitrary code, as root in some cases, cause a denial of service condition, or read sensitive memory content on an affected uh, device. The bugs impact multiple devices, including Nexus 3000 series switches to Nexus 9000 series switches in standalone NXOS mode, Nexus 9500 R-series line cards, and fabric modules, Firepower 4100 and Firepower 30, um, 9300 products, UCS 6100 to UCS 6300 series fabric interconnects, and MDS 9000 series multi-layer switches. Cisco also addressed high-risk vulnerabilities impacting NXOS software and FXOS software affecting Nexus 4000 series switch, Nexus 3000, and 9000 series, and Firepower 4100 series, and Firepower 9300 uh, security appliance. The issues affecting NXOS include command injections in the CLI and NX API, denial of service in the SNMP input packet processor, elevation of privilege in role-based access control, remote code execution and denial of service in the internet group management protocol, snooping feature, uh, denial of service in the border gateway protocol implementation, and elevation of privilege in NX API. Flaws also affecting FXOS software include unauthorized administrator account and the write erase feature. Denial of service conditions in the Discovery Protocol, formerly known as CDP, subsystem, and Cisco Fabric Services component, and arbitrary code execution in the Cisco Discovery Protocol component. Issues affecting only FXOS software include an arbitrary code execution vulnerability in the CLI parser and a denial of service bug in the web uh, user interface. Additionally, Cisco patched denial of service flaws in the SNMP feature of the Cisco Nexus 4000 series switch and in the implementation of a specified um, specific CLI command and the associated SNMP MIB for Cisco Nexus 3000 and 9000 series switches. A path traversal vulnerability was, was resolved in the process of uploading new application images to the Cisco Firepower 4100 series next generation firewall and firepower 9300 security appliance. As part of this set of uh, security updates, Cisco also addressed 10 medium risk flaws in telepresence video communication server, VCS, Expressway, 
Unified Communications Manager, IM, and Present Service, formerly CUPS, NXOS Software, NVIDIA TX1 Boot ROM, Meeting Server, Firepower Management Center, 5000 Series Enterprise Network Compute System, and Unified Computing uh, Series Servers, and AnyConnect Secure Mobility Client for Windows Desktop. So the uh, updates were released for the vulnerable products. Cisco customers with valid licenses are advised to upgrade to an appropriate release. Um, details uh, on the resolved vulnerabilities and the affected products and devices are available on Cisco's website. So everybody with those products, please go there, check them out. Um, make sure you patch, download, and verify in your system. That's crazy. So there's a few things um, with uh, iOS and NXOS devices, so like Cisco platforms. I believe there's an auto-upgrade feature, right? So auto-upgrade is disabled by default, and this was for the old 3850 switches, which me and you know all too well, right? Right. Um, those, those are frequently used, but... Now with the new Nexus switches coming out, I'm not sure if it's the same thing. But there, um, so there's a number of scenarios when you need to introduce a new switch into an existing stack of 3850s. However, the 3850 includes a feature called auto upgrade, which might be familiar if you're migrating from the 3750 platform. The goal of the feature is to ensure any newly added switch will automatically be provisioned by the stack running iOS XE. So okay. I'm wondering if they have some, but I guess you would run into a situation where if you enabled an auto upgrade, Cisco devices control, you know, network connectivity, and you may have the network go down depending upon what type yeah, of. Yeah, I I wouldn't trust the auto. Not that I don't trust Cisco. It's just I don't. I wouldn't trust my enterprise to. I'd have to test it first, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. So you'd have to have like good configuration management, like a configuration management policy um, where essays are routinely looking for these vulnerabilities when they're released. And then they have a methodology for, you know, having an integration and test and then, you know, pushing it out. So one thing that has really stuck with me is netflix's ideology for using aws and some of the platforms for virtualization Mm -hmm. where you know anytime that they spin up a vm they have like a um a gold image of that vm so a vulnerability in their environment is only can only be two hours old to two and a half hours old Uh, like a movie and then it goes away right Exactly. So I think if you could, you know, obviously it's a different consumer service than like if you have an enterprise that has business operations and you have to keep the infrastructure up. But, you know, it definitely could be um, something very similar to that. But just an idea, just a thought. Cool. Well, I think uh, I think I hear some music. What about you, Nick? (laughs) Yeah, sounds good, right? It does. It's good to be back. Good to be so, back. Thanks for staying in sync with, with InfoSec Sync. InfoSec Sync has been brought to you by VicTech, established to provide fast and reliable technologies for the U.S. intelligence community and Department of Defense. That's V I K T E C H dot net. <laughs>